Welcome to the Deep Sea Dive, where we explore deconstruction for exvangelical escapees of purity culture, along with all manner of other topics related to conservative American Christianity, religious drama, purity culture, and feminism, progressivism, etc. I'm your host, Snorkel. Please keep in mind, this is an inclusive space. We do not judge anyone based on sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, age, class, religion, or lack thereof, or anything else. Trigger warning, this episode will include discussions of sexual abuse, physical abuse, and self-harm. Hello and welcome back for Chapter 3 of my Marianas Trench level of in-depth book review for Raising Maidens of Virtue, a study of feminine loveliness for mothers and daughters by Stacey McDonald. This is a fundamentalist Christian purity culture manual on how to turn yourself, or worse, your daughter, into a perfect little fundy Stepford wife slash the perfect victim for any and all kinds of abuse. Not only is this book toxic as fuck, but it's also cringy beyond all reason and super uncomfy to read on a variety of levels. In case you haven't already, please check out the other three episodes where I discuss the introduction and foreword as well as chapters one and two of this misogynistic monstrosity. Let me just insert a quick apology here for the delay in publishing this episode. I normally try to publish an episode every week on Sunday night, but we've had a strong stomach bug around here lately, and unless you all wanted to hear me puking instead of just threatening to puke over the contents of this book, I was unable to record. So this episode is dropping on Sunday the 25th, and the next one will be dropping on Sunday the 2nd, as planned. Thank you for your patience and understanding. This week's chapter, A Noble Calling, is significantly less horrible on the surface. Here on the Deep Sea Dive, as always, we aren't staying on the surface. This is also a relatively short chapter with a weird format, so I'm going to give a synopsis of the chapter itself and then go into more detail about what nefarious message is lurking below. This chapter is actually mostly just an excerpt from From Dusk Till Dawn, A Tale of Martin Luther and the Reformation by Elizabeth Rundle Charles, which was originally published not during the Reformation, but instead in 1862. It was republished in 2003 by Books on the Path, which I could not find any information about online, but interestingly enough is the same publisher that published this very book, Raising Maidens of Virtue. Hmm. Also, when I found From Dusk to Dawn on Amazon to see if I could find more information, I saw that it has an editorial review by none other than Lori Bluedorn of Trivium Pursuit, the same company that employs their daughter, Johanna Bluedorn, the illustrator of Raising Maidens of Virtue. Ah, nepotism and shady business dealings. Fundies and nepotism name a more iconic duo, right? But enough about that, let's get to this excerpt. Quote, In this story, we peer into the heart of Agnes, a young girl who lived in Germany during the time of the Reformation. Just like all of us, she struggles with the issues of pride and contentment. Unquote. Now, this is a quote from Stacey McDonald, the author, not from the excerpt. But okay. Pride and contentment. For anyone who has grown up even tangentially fundy or just plain conservative Christian, you've probably heard about these things before, especially in the context of working on your contentment. We'll get more into that and the implication of this whole chapter later. So this excerpt is about a girl named Agnes. Her father is a school teacher and a preacher, and Agnes loves him very much and thinks he is utterly spectacular and amazing. But one day, she's visiting her extended family at her uncle Ulrich's castle. 
While she's there, she's complimented on her looks, particularly her pretty golden hair and her, quote, little white hands and delicate features, unquote. Which apparently is shocking to the upper class, as Agnes is just a poor teacher's daughter and not part of the privileged class. In spite of her uncle having a freaking castle, but whatever. One day, Agnes is playing in the woods and overhears some women gossiping about her situation and her father's occupation and economic status. Like I said, they're incredulous that someone so poor and from such a lowly family could be so pretty. Agnes is understandably upset, embarrassed, and incensed over what was said about her beloved family, but she doesn't tell anyone what she heard. Later on, Agnes is supposed to attend a fancy party at her rich uncle's castle with all her other well-to-do relatives. Everyone is supposed to dress up for the event, and all her cousins are described as wearing the most fashionable and costly clothing, with jewels and imported materials and the works. In contrast, Agnes only has a homemade dress made by her mother and herself, and although it's far more plain and simple, she's very proud of the work and love that went into creating it. But her cousins don't think it's quite good enough, and so in an effort to help, they secretly put a fancy, expensive gown in her room in the middle of the night for her to find when she wakes up on the day of the party. Agnes at first thinks it's beautiful and eagerly tries it on, but then she starts to feel bad. She likes the dress, but feels guilty for feeling that way, and feels like she's somehow betraying her mother and her homemade dress and her simple but happy life. Her aunt comes into the room and finds her crying over this. Her aunt reassures her that it's okay to like her homemade dress better, because it represents love, but that Agnes should still wear the fancy dress to the ball so she fits in. But after that, she never has to wear it again if she doesn't want to, because her homemade clothes are just as good as fancy things. Except not really, or they wouldn't be trying to make her wear fancy stuff instead of her homemade stuff, but whatever. So Agnes wears the fancy dress, but still feels weird about it, and then feels weird about feeling weird about it. She goes home and is ashamed to realize that her family's house is small and old and rickety, even though she still enjoys the homey touches that her mother tries to use to make it comfortable. Agnes's mother notices she's upset, and Agnes spills the beans about the dress debacle and the gossipy ladies that made her feel bad. And the next part is really hard to make sense of, because the story seems to say one thing and then immediately say another. But from what I can gather, after reading it about a dozen times, old Tammy language doesn't help, the mom asks if Agnes agrees that her dad is, quote, only a schoolmaster. Agnes vehemently goes on a tirade about how she thinks her dad is the best man in the world and how it's infinitely better to pursue a career teaching children and parishioners than to, quote, hunt foxes and buy and sell bales of silk and wool, unquote. Agnes then remarks the world at large seems, quote, exceedingly hollow and crooked, unquote, and that she doesn't ever want to be a part of it or see any more of it. She then asks her mother if she's dumb for thinking this. The mother gives a weird response, saying that Agnes has encountered the devil and the temptations of the flesh, and worse, that she hasn't left them behind, but brought them with her. Whatever that means. Agnes then asserts that her father's calling is the most noble, and her family's house the most beautiful and the nicest. But her mother still reprimands her and says that no, their house isn't the nicest, and not the most beautiful, but it's just the nicest and most beautiful to Agnes because she loves it. Her father's calling is only noble. She said it. She said the title of the chapter. Everybody drink. 
because it's the calling God gave him. So Agnes reflects on this as the story closes. Quote, I learned that what makes any calling noble is it being commanded by God, and what makes anything good is it being given by God, and that honest contentment consists in not persuading ourselves that our things are the very best in the world, but in believing they are the best for us. Unquote. Cool. So, like I said, at first glance, the story isn't really that bad. It's weird, convoluted, kind of contradictory, because it seems like it's saying you should be proud, but not really. But I could easily see being able to interpret the lesson being that you shouldn't rely on outside opinions of your self-worth, which is overall a great and healthy attitude. Ignore gossips, be confident in who you are and where you come from, realize the material wealth doesn't determine someone's value, and focus on doing the best that you can with what you have. If that was the takeaway here, I honestly wouldn't have a problem. But because Stacy is Stacy, and because fundamentalism is never that simple or healthy or reasonable, we know that isn't meant to be the takeaway lesson. We know this because Stacy gave us a number of discussion questions after this excerpt, which is super lazy. The only thing she wrote for this chapter were the questions. She literally just stole an entire chapter from her publisher and copied and pasted it. Lame. And these discussion questions make it clear what Stacy thinks we should be learning from Agnes. We are asked to consider things like, what did Agnes mean when she said bitterness overcame her? Quote, what was the real reason this young maiden experienced bitterness when overhearing the woman gossiping? Unquote. Implying that hearing someone diss your family isn't reason enough. We are also asked to rank the following occupations in order of importance slash value. Quote, doctor, president, mother, theologian, missionary, father. Unquote. While she doesn't tell us this outright, just going by the things she actually says in this book, I am confident that Stacy would have it in the order of most importance to least important. Father, theologian, missionary, doctor, president, mother. Because she worships fathers and men in general, hates women unless they're mothers, hates anything modern and to do with science, and thinks women shouldn't be any of the other options besides mother anyways. She then asks who were able to complete the assignment. I don't know about you, but I had trouble with this, albeit for different reasons than Stacy's intended audience might. I feel like doctors are extremely important, but so are both mothers and fathers. Let's just say parents in general. Presidents are also important. As we've seen, they can make or break a country. One term with Trump and now we're overrun by Nazis. Theologians, I guess, can be important, but they're not, like, vital for a society, and same with missionaries. I'm all for spreading the gospel, and by gospel, I mean the teachings of Jesus who said to love your neighbor and do unto others as you'd have them do to you, and whoever is without sin can cast the first stone. But only to people who are willing to hear it, and I don't know, there's a lot of harm caused by so-called missionaries, and it's tied up with a lot of colonialism and racism, and I'm just not going to get into the nitty-gritty of that today. So I guess, yeah, there's my list. Doctors, parents of all genders, presidents, theologians, then missionaries. But then Stacy asks if some vocations or callings are truly more valuable or important than others. Quote, what makes a calling noble? Unquote. She said it again. Drink! I'd argue that, yeah, some are more important, but only in a certain sense. People like doctors, sanitation workers, first responders, but not police, ACAB. 
Scientists, engineers, programmers are all vital for society as we know it to exist. But people like teachers, childcare workers, food service workers, public transit workers are also vital even if they don't get enough appreciation. And then people like artists, philosophers, entertainers are all seen as superfluous, but art is part of what makes us human. It might not be necessary to survive, but it is necessary to thrive. So no, I don't think that you could really reasonably create a hierarchy of careers. And even if you could, the ones at the top are going to be some of the most underpaid people around. Cough, cough, teachers, sanitation workers, retail workers. Anyway, we're then told that, quote, Agnes realizes that her bitterness was the result of ungodly reaction to the opinion of others, unquote. Right. I guess that answers question number one. It's apparently sinful to be angry when someone says something bad about your family. This actually tracks because part of the IBLP's teachings is that anger is always selfishly motivated and therefore a sin. They literally cannot conceive of an occasion when you might be angry on behalf of someone else or angry at injustice or even sin. Never mind that Jesus himself got angry. Angry enough to destroy private property even. And I know Stacy isn't officially part of the IBLP, to my knowledge. But these ideas overlap throughout so much of evangelical and conservative Christianity. The idea that every emotion other than pure joy is a sin is so, so harmful. I don't have the words to adequately describe how harmful. In my own experience, being told to stop looking so sad, or to smile more, or stop being depressed and self-harming because you don't have anything to be depressed about led to extremely unhealthy behavior and thought processes that I'm honestly still trying to recover from. And I know that there are so many people who have experienced way worse. Religious trauma is a legitimate thing. But beyond that, something that struck me about this chapter was that it has a lot of underlying implications. For one, it seems to condone pride in one's family or vocation, if it happens to be noble enough, but also cautions against pride because that's a sin. And there is a difference between confidence and arrogance, but that's too nuanced for the fundies. Instead, all pride is bad, except for the contentment you feel because you are grateful for what God has given you. And gratitude is a very good thing. Most of us have at least a few things to be grateful for, and intentional reflection and gratitude can help you cope with feelings of anxiety, envy, etc. At least it has for me. But this kind of toxic positivity the everything is sunshine and rainbows even when it's all really just shit, that's harmful. That's unhealthy. That's not going to lead anywhere good. And toxic positivity is rampant in these communities and teachings. How many of you were ever told to keep sweet or count your blessings? And again, there's nothing wrong with gratitude, but being forced to twist every little thing, no matter how devastating or how slight, into a positive is Olympic-caliber mental gymnastics. These people teach that if your life sucks, it's probably your own fault, and even if it's not, God is trying to teach you something so you can't ever complain and you can't ever be sad. You have to always be grateful for every little thing that comes your way or else. Not only that, but you should never try to improve your situation or life. Wherever you're at, no matter how bad it is, is where God wants you, and it's a sin to try to do anything different. You have abusive parents? Too bad. Abusive spouse? That's what God wants. Starving? Sick? It's your cross to bear. And not only is that completely unbiblical, but also toxic as fuck. 
Are we puppets with no free will, subject to the whims of moody gods? Are we incapable of thought or action? Are we not supposed to rise above our circumstances? The answer is no, we're not supposed to rise above our circumstances, unless we are a white straight male. There are plenty of chapters and verses in the Bible encouraging people to be courageous, to take action, take risks, and not squander opportunity. But fundijelicals only let those apply to men. Any women, any minorities are supposed to just sit quietly and suffer in silence. We are not allowed to have any ambition. If you don't believe me, take a look at how the Bible was used to justify slavery, or how it's still being used to justify misogyny. Conservative Christians love to cherry-pick verses based on someone's gender or ethnicity and use that to either elevate or oppress accordingly. Ambition, bravery, strength, cunning. Oh, that's only for men. Meekness, subservience, obedience. That's for women and slaves. Of course, this viewpoint requires one to ignore the numerous stories of Bible heroes who defied this racist, misogynist ideal. You've got women in the Old and New Testaments being bold leaders, subverting cultural and religious norms, even breaking the law, and they're praised for it. You've got men depicted as cowards and failures, lowly and oppressed people finding agency. So this idea that, well, all callings can be noble, but wherever you happen to be is now where God wants you to be, but only if you're a woman because men are allowed to reach higher, is entirely made up. In the end, to quote the Iron Giant, we are who we choose to be. Being a stay-at-home mom might be the noblest calling, for some. Being a scientist or engineer might be the noblest calling, for some. Being a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, a secretary, a bus driver, a farmer, a politician, a retail worker, an artist, a content creator, whatever, might be the noblest calling if that's what fits you and your needs and your goals and your life. And so I'd like to leave you with the one nugget of wisdom that I could squeeze out of this chapter that all callings can be noble if they're special to you. Whether you're rich or poor or anything in between, your worth and your value don't come from your social standing or other people's opinion of you. If you are living an honest, earnest, genuine life doing the best you can, you're worth more than words can say. You're invaluable simply because you're a human being, and no one can take that away, no matter what. Thanks for listening to this episode. I again apologize for the delay in getting it out. Rest assured that we will continue on and get back on schedule, and the next episode will drop next Sunday on the 2nd. If you like this podcast, please recommend it to a friend, acquaintance, family member, arch nemesis, whatever. You can find me on Reddit as you forward slash the real snorkel and our subreddit as r forward slash deep underscore letter c underscore dive. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week, divers.